Genesis chapter number 7. It's great to have some of my extended family in the service with us this morning. I've got my Aunt Stacy from Colorado and I have my cousin's wife. Um, is that like a cousin-in-law? I'm not even sure what that is. But Samantha and her daughter Cassie, all the way from London. Uh, my cousin is working on his PhD over there and uh, is wrapping that up over the next year. So it's great to have them for a quick little trip. And uh, again, we're excited about continuing our series through the book of Genesis. Um, we find ourselves in a similar text to what we covered in chapter number six. If you are reading ahead, you'll notice a lot of similarities between chapter six and chapter seven. Uh, chapter six lays out the plan. Chapter seven is the implementation of the plan. And all in it there, we're going to follow uh, God's word here of what he has for us in uh, our text this morning. So let's open in a word of prayer. Ask the Lord just to quiet our hearts, quiet our minds, and uh, we'll get going here this morning. Father, we thank you so much for this day again that you've given us. This is the day that you have made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We just thank you for your word. Where else can we go, Lord? Where else can we go? You alone have the words of life. So, Father, I pray this morning that we would put away distractions and the cares of this world, the troubles that we have, the things that we carry in, even to a worship service. Um, and I pray that we would just truly empty ourselves of everything that we have and that we would truly desire to hear from you, hear from your word, and be changed as a result of it, Father. I pray even in a, an Old Testament narrative text, Father, I pray that we would see you there that we would see your plan of redemption being foretold in the pages of, of Genesis and that we would look forward to a future hope that we have to escape the penalty of sin, to escape death and to live with you forever in heaven in relationship with your Father. So Father, I pray again this morning that you would do the work that I cannot do. We cannot manufacture spiritual growth we cannot manufacture change. There is no atmosphere or environment. There is no song that can be sung to change a cold heart, to be warmed to your word. And so, Father, I pray that you would do that work. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. I don't know about you, but I can remember the first time that I rode a roller coaster. Um, you remember that time when you were a little kid? You remember that time leading up to it? I can remember that, that time vividly. It was uh, at our infamous Worlds of Fun just south of us here in, in Liberty. And there was uh, the roller coaster of my day as a child was the uh, infamous Orient Express. You guys remember the Orient Express? Kansas City natives, I hope, will remember that someday. It no longer exists, right? They've taken it out and replaced it with something bigger and better. But back then, it was... It was the thing, right? And I can remember as a little kid, like my family, we're a little bit crazy, right? We just have a propensity to want to do kind of crazy stuff and kind of live a little bit on the edge. And so as a child, riding roller coasters wasn't an option. How many of you live in a family where riding roller coasters wasn't an option? You been there? Just our family. Okay, great. So um, that, was, that was our family, right? It just was something that we did. It was a rite of passage in the Stanley family, and so we just... 
We had to just bear down and do it. Well, I can remember as a young kid, the, the anticipation was building. I can remember as a little kid just wearing my tallest shoes that I could have and stretching my neck out as far as I could and literally practicing at home to be able to get past that elusive 48-inch mark on the board. Right, kids? I'm sure you can resonate with that. But I can remember I finally got there. We, we were in the park. We got in line for this Orient Express and all my dreams were supposedly coming true. And I made it past the attendant. She actually let me pass. I'm sure I was still a couple inches short, but I made it past there. And I'm in the line of the Orient Express. And it's a big, long line ride just going back and forth, winding. And all of a sudden, the excitement wore off and terror, <laughs> terror grips my heart. And I'm thinking, what in the world am I doing here in this line as a little kid about to get on this Orient Express that was doing the flips and the twist, and I'm listening and I'm watching the screams of terror, right, as they're going by, and I'm literally thinking, I've lost my mind, how can I get out of this? And I don't know if you guys can remember this detail about this Orient Express line, but there was something unique about this roller coaster. As you made your way about halfway through the line, there was an exit, and there wasn't just any exit. This exit had signage above it. And this signage was entitled, The Chicken Exit. How many, you guys remember The Chicken Exit? Okay, I, I, okay, some of you are, are tracking with me there. So here I am, who knows how old I am, probably three. And I'm about to <laughs> climb onto this Orient Express. And I'm thinking, I've got to get out of this. There's, there's no way... I'm jumping on this. I'm seeing people probably dying on this roller coaster, or at least that's what it sounded like, and I'm looking for my, my way of escape. Now, my memory blanks at that point. I don't know if it was because I blacked out or what happened, so I don't actually, did I actually ride it that day or not? Yeah. I did, okay. So I didn't take the chicken exit, and I lived to tell the story, but I can remember thinking everything in me, I'm sure my mom was giving me a lot of peer pressure and all that type of stuff, <laughs> But, but I wanted in everything in me to take that way of escape. And pardon the illustration, but this morning we're going to look at Genesis chapter number seven and we're gonna see a way of escape that was provided for, for Noah and for his family. And through Noah and his family escaping this coming flood of destruction as God looks at the earth and he deems that they were corrupt, they were sinful, and they only did evil continually. And God now plays out this plan to take them off the face of the earth. There's a remnant. There is a seed. There is a line that is preserved through the family of Noah that God is making a way of escape through the ark. Let's look back at Genesis chapter number six just briefly to set the stage for why we are at this place in Genesis chapter number seven. Chapter six, verse number five. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was what? Great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord 
These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Verse 13, and God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then he leaves Noah this remark, make yourself an ark. So this is the why. This is the backdrop of God's plan that has been laid out. Sin was running rampant. The earth was deemed corrupt. Mankind did only evil continually. And the earth is filled with violence through them. So God did what? God commanded and communicated this plan with Noah in chapter 6. He gives incredible detail that we looked at last week. And now chapter 7, this plan comes to fruition. So another point of context before we dive into our points this morning, a lot of us are going to ask the question, how long, I wonder, did it take for Noah and his family to complete the construction of this ark? So by way of introduction, it's important to note that the specifications of chapter 6 were great detail. Noah had everything that he needed to be able to construct this ark, but how long did it take, right? So follow me. How old was Noah when he... Uh, had his first son, Japheth. You remember back in chapter five, that was a chapter of genealogy. We got to know and we found that Noah was how old? You guys remember? He was 500 years old, exactly. And then in our text here, in chapter number seven, we see that the flood is about to occur and how old is Noah now? He is, he is 600 years old. So we have this block of about 100 years in Noah's life that uh, part of that is gonna be used to construct the ark. So Noah was without sons and then he had sons at 500 years old, he had Japheth and then Shem and Ham. And so we've got to account for some years of what? Just raising kids? Uh, we know that those that were included in the ark to avoid the flood were not just Noah, his wife, and his sons, but also their, their wives, correct? And so these sons have to grow up. They have to find some wives and they establish their life. So we probably take off maybe a couple decades of Noah and his wife having their sons, them growing up, them finding wives and establishing a life together. And we probably then at that point have a subset of about 55 to 75 years. Most historians and theologians will speculate was about the time frame that the ark would have been constructed. So that's incredible when you think of the specifications, the size, the just raw magnitude of this ark to be completed without modern engineering and equipment is unbelievably a supernatural event that God no doubt had his hands in. So here we have also on top of that, not only did they have to construct the ark, but the animals then had to be put into the ark. And then you also had to do what? You had to feed the animals and they had to feed themselves. So there would have been a period of time of agricultural harvest where they would be able to plant and cultivate, grow, harvest this food, and then what? Store it up in the ark. So you've got a lot going on there and a lot of time that would have been taken here to construct this ark. So Shem, Ham, and Japheth uh, are all a part of this process as well as Noah and his wife. And it's just them building this ark, obviously, along with the direction and help of the Lord. So that's our backdrop. We've got the ark built 
We've got it fully furnished. We have food being gathered and stored up. And now we have the animals obviously coming on board and the family of Noah is going to be taken into the ark and the Lord will shut the door. And so this is where we find ourselves in chapter number seven. So our big idea of our text, if you've heard me preach at any amount of time, you know I like to anchor down on a big idea. And you look at the context of chapter 6 and chapter 7, and we've got basically the same situation, the same circumstances, and the same narrative. And so in trying to get too creative and coming up with another big idea, I'm actually going to carry over our big idea from last week. Is that okay to do? You guys allow me to do that this, this morning. So our big idea of last week that we're going to use to carry over into this week to anchor our hearts and our minds around what is the Lord doing in this text and what does it mean for me Our big idea is this, because of who God is, he will always make a way to be in relationship with his creation, no matter how far they may seem to have strayed. For by his grace, he is making a way and redeeming a remnant. Let me read that one more time. Because of who God is, he will always make a way to be in relationship with his creation, no matter how far they may have seemed to have strayed. For by his grace, he is making a way and redeeming a remnant. A remnant. So this morning, we've got narrative. We've got a story. We've got a collection of events that happened. So this is a little bit different preaching an Old Testament narrative than some of our New Testament epistles and gospels where we can get down and, and really anchor us on a gospel nugget or truth that we can take away and just feast on throughout the week. Right? Old Testament narrative is a little bit more challenging, right? So when we approach a passage similar to this, my, my ask of you, and as you read the text yourself, is that we need to approach and ask ourselves some simple questions such as this. How did God reveal himself in this text? How does this principle or this truth of how God's revealed himself, maybe it's a character trait that he shows, or maybe it's something of how he relates to his people. What does it mean for me? And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we know that this God that we see here in the Old Testament is the same God that we serve in the New Testament, right? So we're looking for for principles. We're looking for takeaways that we see about God and how that relates to how we uh, join with Him in relationship. And that can uh, help us guide our way through an Old Testament narrative. So this morning, we're going to observe four universal, timeless truths concerning God and our relationship with Him that we see here through this flood account Noah's Ark here in chapter number seven. So the first truth is this. God is the final and absolute authority over everything. God is the final and absolute authority over everything. Do you see this this timeless universal truth here in chapter number seven? Uh, Let's let's start reading a portion of our text, our first 10 verses here this morning. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. Verse four, for in seven days, I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Verse number six, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives 
with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals, of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark, Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. Again, do you see this universal truth here in these first few verses that God is the final and absolute authority over everything? God alone has the right to deliver this type of sweeping judgment over his creation. Why? Why why does he have the right to do that? It's not just because he's God and he says so, but as we looked at last week, it's in connection with and in alignment with his character. God alone can deliver this type of judgment. It's because of who he is that he does this. If God is holy and just, and he is, he cannot let sin go uh, unchecked, right? He cannot let sin run rampant. Why? Because he's a holy God and he does what? He desires to be in relationship with his creation. So aren't you thankful that God doesn't leave us to our own sinful vices? But he pursues us. He runs after us. A shepherd after that one lost sheep that has wandered off the path and out of the flock. We see a universal truth here, a timeless truth that God is the final and absolute authority over everything. One point of to note here in chapter number seven, it's interesting in these first few verses, we see a contrast between what? Clean and unclean animals. Do you notice that as we read those first few verses? If you're like me, you're searching for a, a list in previous chapters or you're looking for a clarification on what animals would be clean and what animals would be unclean. But if you're like me and you've read the previous chapters and we preached all the way through it here in chapter number seven, do we see a list of clean and unclean animals? Are they there? No, they're not, are they? There's something about this description of these clean and unclean animals that God, for whatever reason, doesn't give specific clarity. And now, obviously, under inspiration of Scripture, we have the recording of the text right here. There may have been more to it than what was recorded, but this is what we have. And for whatever reason, we don't see God explicitly communicating to Noah of what the clean and unclean animals would be. What's, what's the big idea? What's the point of that? Well, most theologians and historians, as they look at this aspect of God assuming that Noah would know what these animals were, that there's an aspect about this here that's important for us to note. And and most connect this understanding that Noah had of clean and unclean animals to an internal understanding, almost like a consciousness that is described here, an understanding and an awareness between what? Right and, and wrong. Noah knows between his relationship with God as a righteous man in his day of what animals would be clean and unclean. So here we, we have here, right? We, we have some descriptions here where he tells Noah to go in and get seven pairs of the clean animals and a pair of the unclean. And he takes those animals and they're included in, in the ark. They're included in the ark. Again, there's an understanding. There's an awareness. And it can be traced back right here in the earliest history of mankind that they are 
without excuse. There's an understanding of right and wrong. We see that in Psalm 19 where the heavens do what? They declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, night unto night shows knowledge. There's an understanding that God is the creator and all of creation is, is declaring that, screaming that out, that there is a God. There's an internal awareness, an understanding of what is right and what is wrong and that is placed in our hearts and our lives by God himself as mankind is created in the Imago Dei, the very image and likeness of God himself. So friends, it's important for us to note in their day and in ours that mankind up to this point, as this flood is going to take over them, that they are not the victims here. They are not the victims of some twisted plot that's played out by some evil villain that we call God. Have you ever heard that type of description before in the culture and society that we live in? This is, this is the world's modern understanding of Christianity. How could a God that claims to be loving and merciful and gracious do such an atrocious thing as wiping out all generations of mankind, but yet just saving one family? How can, how can this be possible? Friends, we must be equipped we must be equipped with Scripture to take back our understanding of who God is and who He is not. And that has to be based not just on what we think and our own understanding of morality and our finite minds and our understanding as creation, that we are not an infinite God and He alone is creator and all-wise and all-knowing and all-perfect. And He is holy and just as we see those character traits laid out in the pages of Scripture. So mankind is without excuse. They have chosen sin. Mankind has strayed. They have chosen that sin that we see described here in chapter number six and in chapter number seven. They've chosen that sin over what? A relationship with God. If we look back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve chose what? Sin, going against God's law and God's commandment over a relationship with God. His expectation and his standard was clear, but they chose to disobey God. So as sinners, we're not victims of our own circumstances. We've willfully chosen. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. So clean and unclean was not just some internal awareness of, uh, that, that was stumbled upon by Noah. It was established by way of divine institution. God has, has given Noah this ability to understand this clean and unclean. And this divine institution that, that, that God has established that, that Noah is aware of and understands and, and is pursuing, this would enter into the picture and it would provide the way for what the Levitical system, Levitical system that would introduce what? The, the sacrificial system, the shedding of blood to atone for the sins of mankind. And that Levitical system that was, that was played out through the nation of Israel, it would make way for what? A perfect sacrifice. Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb without spot or blemish, who would take on the sins past, present, and future of all mankind. And he would make a way, shedding his blood once and for all, 
to make a way of escape for you and for me. So God alone is the final and absolute authority over everything. Romans 5, verse number 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. We are all plagued with this eternal predicament called sin. Aren't you thankful before the foundations of the world that he provided a way? Jesus Christ was no plan B. The gospel of grace through faith was no afterthought. This was always God's plan to make a way of escape for the failure of mankind, to provide a way for God to be in relationship once again with his creation. I'm thankful that God is saving a people. He is drawing a remnant to himself. He is providing this way of escape. His will and his way will not be denied. It will be fulfilled that we saw back in Genesis chapter 3, 15, where we were told that the serpent will bruise the heel of our Savior, but that promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, through the preserved line of chapter 5, what will he do? He will crush the head of Satan. And just as we sang this morning, death was arrested through the personal work of Jesus Christ, sin, death, and hell no longer has dominion over us because of a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. I love this description in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. Death is swallowed up in what? Victory. Death is swallowed up in what? Victory. There is no defeat. There is no claim that sin or death has on the life of a believer because Christ is one. Death is swallowed up in victory. It goes on to say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Almost taunting death, reminding it that it will not win. And it has already lost the battle. It goes on to say, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us once again the victory through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this is a beautiful and wondrous truth. So God is making a way on his terms. It's on his terms that we come to God. God is certainly in a sweeping way punishing the depravity of mankind here. But he's also in the midst of that. Do we see a sliver of grace? Do we see hope? Do we see that preserved line that will make way for that promised Messiah? I'm so thankful for it. He's making a way on his terms to not only sustain but to maintain his relationship with his creation. He's not going to let death win. He's not going to let sin have the final word. Although he must judge it because of his character, he is making a way. So it goes on uh, in, in our text here. It says then in chapter number eight, excuse me, and this is going to make a way to a new relationship uh, that God is going to have with Noah and his family in future generations this way of escape that he's making. I'm not going to steal Dave's thunder of chapter number eight, but it goes on to say, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So these clean and unclean animals, 
This understanding of, of right and wrong and, and God providing these clean animals is going to pave the way for a new relationship that God will make with his people through his covenant with Noah in chapter number eight. And this is beautiful. It's all connected. Chapter six, chapter seven, and chapter eight, we see God pursuing his relationship with a people all through this despite incredible loss, despite credible pain, Despite credible circumstances here in chapter six and seven, God again is making a way. So God is the final and absolute authority over everything. Look with me in verse number 16 of chapter number seven. Verse number 16, and those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in and the Lord shut him in. We see that God is the authority, that he is orchestrating the events that are taking place here. Certainly he chose to use the vessel of Noah as he was a righteous man in his day, but God is sovereign over all and through all, and he is making this way of escape possible. The second timeless and universal truth that we'll look at this morning is our decision to choose sin always has consequences. Our decision to choose sin always has consequences. This timeless universal truth, doesn't it stand in stark contrast to the life and the testimony of Noah that we see here in chapter number seven? Verse number five, look with me there. It says, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. I find it interesting that we never see Noah do what? We never see Noah complain. We never see Noah question the details or the circumstances or the timeline of what God is communicating to him. We simply see what? We see faith. We see trust. We see total and complete obedience. But in the midst of that obedience, important that we note who's behind that obedience. Who's behind this, this perspective of, of faith and trust and commitment that we see in the life of Noah? The faith that, Noah, that the Lord allows Noah to display here, it, it truly is remarkable. But as we noted in chapter number six, it was who that found favor with Noah? It was God, right? You guys remember that? That God was the one that found favor um, in, in the life and in, in the testimony of, of uh, or excuse me, I'm flipping that around. Noah found favor in the eyes of God, right? So it was God pursuing him. It was God reaching after Noah to use him as this, this vessel, this, this lump of clay. Sin, its effect, its influence on the earth is remarkable as we see this just incredible depravity that's described here in chapter six and seven. And we don't have to look too far to understand that we live in a day that's waxing worse and worse and um, depraved in our own right, are we not? Doing right in our own eyes, if it feels good, do it. Throwing out the truth of God's word and exchanging that for a lie. Romans chapter one, where we've uh, usurped God's authority and the creation has taken the place of what? The creator. So we alone are defining what is right and wrong. And in our day, we find that through these relativism, uh, where truth is no longer uh, God's word. It's whatever, hey, is, is right to you, is it's true to you, and, and that's great, right? Multiple roads leading to 
the same place, right? Whether it's uh, Eastern religion or whether it's uh, some type of health, wealth, and prosperity of American culture or whatever it might be, as long as you're a good person and your good works outweigh your bad works, and we're all going to end up probably in the same place, right? Have you guys ever heard some of this in our day? It's important to note that God's word alone is, is truth, right? It alone is inspired and inerrant. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction. The man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And so we anchor our heart and minds not on the thought and the ideas of our day, but on what? The word of God. And as unpopular or unpopular that may be, again, as I uh, used in my prayer this morning, where, where else can we go? We, we only find the words of life in, in the pages of Scripture. And so we continue to anchor ourselves in the Word of God. So our decision to choose sin always has what? It always has consequences. Always has consequences. This reality that uh, it, it doesn't stop us to um, consider, doesn't cause us to stop us and to consider our way. If there's one takeaway that we can see here about sin is that God takes it very seriously. Do we not see that? And we consider our own personal life and our relationship with him. How often do we allow just passing seemingly uh, petty sins to just fester and, and stay present in our life? Do we not dilute the character of God, his holiness and his character when we just allow sin to not be taken seriously in our life? That it's not that big of a deal. It's not as bad as some of the other things that might be present in other lives. But when we look at what is our takeaway here, how should we view ourselves and how should we view our relationship with God? One of the takeaways that we have to anchor down on is this, that sin is a big deal. It's a big deal. Why? Because it breaks that relationship with God. How many times have you heard me this morning that God is making a way to be in relationship with his people? That's why he takes sin so seriously. That's why he has to deal with sin. That's why he has to judge sin in this sweeping manner because he desires to be in relationship with his people. Sin always has consequences. What should our response be to this? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great a cloud of witnesses, let, a, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was true then. It is true now. Sin has consequences. The flood did come, didn't it? It did rain 40 days and 40 nights, didn't it? This was all part of what God's judgment on the sin of man kind. The Lord did as he said he would. Verse number four of chapter number seven, every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. Universal truth number three, God's grace is always present in the pain. God's grace is always present in the pain. God's way of escape wasn't just limited to the life of Noah. That grace had a ripple effect in our narrative here, did it not? Noah was the one that was found what? Righteous. He was the one that was uh, living countercultural to his day. It doesn't give us the indication that, that his wife or his sons were, were really doing the same. It was Noah that found 
that was found favorable in the eyes of God. And therefore, uh, Noah was given this task. He was provided a way of escape, and that extended not just to his wives, but to his sons and even to their wives. So there's grace present in this somewhat painful, troubling, and difficult story. There's grace. What is grace? We talked about this last week, unmerited favor, getting something that was completely undeserved. There's grace in the midst of the loss. There's grace in the midst of the loss. God desires, again, to be in relationship with his creation. This is God's redemptive plan, the gospel, the good news from the beginning of time. His grace is always present, even in the darkest times of our life. We've got to believe that because it's truth. The lie of the enemy is that in the midst of the darkness is that he tries to get us to believe that God has left us alone. That he's left us without hope. That he's deserted and abandoned us. But grace is there. And it never will fail. You remember the second point of our message from last week. God certainly always deals with sin in a manner consistent with his character. But that second point was that God's plan is always sustained with grace in a manner consistent with his character. Just as it is God's character that demands a verdict on sin, it is also God's character that provides that means of grace, a way of escape. It's consistent. That's not a contradiction. There's cohesion in the midst of his character to judge and deal with sin rightly, but also to extend a remnant of grace. Don't you love that? So with a measure of empathy, I understand from a human perspective that God's grace doesn't always come in the way that we want it to. The timing of it, the circumstances around God's grace, it doesn't always feel like unmerited favor. What do I mean by that? Have you ever gone through a really dark, difficult circumstance and trial of life? And in the midst of it, you've got nothing but just a big question mark and you're asking the questions of why? Where are you at, God? And then you work your way through that trial and that circumstance. God reveals himself to you. He sustains you through that trial and that difficulty. You come out on the other side and you've learned something fresh and new about the Lord, about your relationship with him, about how his preserving love keeps you and holds you tight and he will hold you fast. Have you ever come out on the other side of that circumstance and said, I connected the dots. I, I understand the why. And God was present there in that dark, difficult circumstance. His grace isn't always given in the package of health, wealth, and prosperity. Sometimes his grace gives us what we need and not necessarily what we want. If I had a nickel for every time my kids asked me for a piece of candy or for a treat in the day, I would be a wealthy man. But I know that it's not best for them to give them 24-7, 360 days a year what they want. My kids would have no teeth in their head and they would be extremely unhealthy and uh, ill, right? If, if I allowed them to have everything that they wanted. But instead... As a loving father, I give them many times what they need. 
And I remind them that they need to eat not just the candy, but they need to eat those vegetables. They need to eat that. Can I get an amen, parents? Yeah, there we go. Now, now, we're, now the Spirit's really working here. But yeah, we, uh, we, we give our children a combination, though. As a loving father, there is nothing more joyful for me in my life to give my kids what they want. It just, doesn't it just make your heart glad? But I throttle that back and understand that I can't do that all the time. What's best for them is a combination of a loving father pursuing them and, and giving them certainly what they want sometimes, but also coming along inside and saying, no, that's not what's best for you. We're going to hold that. We're going to delay that response. We're going to teach you and grow you and mature you. We're going to develop some discipline in your life. Just like I work with my kids to do the same thing. This is what the father does to his children, his sons and daughters. But he's patient. He's long-suffering suffering, and he's merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. This is how the Lord deals with us as his, as his children. So grace is always present, even in the midst of the hardest, most difficult, and darkest of times. That way of escape doesn't always match up again to what we expected, but it is perfect nonetheless. Why? Because it is God's plan. And sometimes that way of escape and God's grace comes by way of loss, by way of hardship and difficulty and pain. And in our Twisted Western construct of Christianity, we have somehow traded that truth for the lie that following God, loving God, and living for God will universally mean blessing, comfort, ease, and clarity. This is a lie. It's a distortion of the truth. And, and we saw that Satan do the same thing back in the Garden of Eden, did we not? Distorting the truth, exchanging truth for that lie. We know that the thief has come only to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says in John 10, 10, that he has come, that we might have life and have it more abundantly. But have you ever considered this, friends, that the abundant life, that way of escape, that way of escape and that abundant life, it, it might just come by the most unlikely of ways. This is why James tells us in chapter one, we can count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith does what? Produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that comes by way of what? Trials. That's God's grace. That's God's way of escape. That's him teaching us and changing us and molding us and making us into his image and likeness. So what should our response be to this reality that God's grace is present even in the pain and the darkest and difficult of circumstances? My prayer is that we would respond to this truth and we would allow it to recalibrate the lens by which we view God. This should change how we relate to God, okay? This should change how we view circumstances and trials and difficulties. This should change how we view the Old Testament. This should change, this should change how we read this, this flood account of God taking sweeping action against the sinfulness of mankind. This should impact how we view God and how we relate to him. So we've seen that God is the final and absolute authority over everything. We've seen that our decision to choose sin always has consequences. 
We just saw that God's grace is always present in the pain and the darkest of, of moments of our life. But as we look at the end of chapter number seven, and we consider these final few verses, we can't help but be reminded of this final truth, and it's this. God's final judgment on sin is imminent. God's final judgment on sin is imminent. We see this in verses 17 through 24, that God's judgment on the earth and mankind is, is complete. It is, it is done. It does rain. The, the waters come up from the ground and the heavens open up and it, and it floods 15 cubits over the tallest mountain. This earth is consumed with water and everything is destroyed in it. But to remind us, these actions, these circumstances that the Lord delivers, they are consistent with his character. Because, why? He desires to be in relationship with his creation and he cannot do that with the presence of sin. The only way this relationship between God and man can be restored is for us or for God to deliver judgment against sin. He is long-suffering. God is patient. He is steadfast in making a way even for you and I to escape this coming and final judgment on sin. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 is an incredible reminder. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Young person, adult, whether you're a visitor here or whether you're a member of our church, do you know Jesus? Have you received his grace, his unmerited favor? Has your predicament of sin, the relationship, your relationship with God that has been broken because of your sin, has that been restored? Has that relationship been uh, redeemed through the person and work of Jesus Christ? Friends, there's a glorious truth this morning as we consider the effects of sin, his judgment, his way of escape, his provision for Noah and his family. There's a beautiful reality that he is making a way, not just then, but for us now. God's final judgment on sin is imminent. There should be a sense of urgency, understanding my standing before a holy God. My sin is a big problem and it demands a verdict. The question is, has Jesus taken my sin on his behalf? That great exchange, his righteousness for my unrighteousness, Jesus taking my sin to the cross, shedding his blood and making remission from my sin. This is the beautiful story of grace that is completely undeserved that I did nothing to earn or benefit from. But God has done that through Jesus. Do you know the gospel? Have you received the gospel? Is the Lord drawing you to himself through the personal work of Jesus Christ? Timeless principles in a troubled world. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your love, your grace, your mercy. I pray through this Noah's Ark and Flood account that we would see 
the gospel, we would see your beautiful redemptive plan working its way out through the pages of scripture. And I pray that we would find hope in the midst of these difficult circumstances where God judges sin severely. Pray that our view of you would be rightly observed through the pages of scripture, that our biases or our presuppositions or what we think it should be, that we would put all that aside and just, Father, trust you. We would love you. We would be in relationship with you. Father, we pray these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.